Part 4 of Rebels of the Red Planet by Charles Louis Fontenay, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rebels of the Red Planet, 7. Maya had never seen Newell in such a state of sustained rage. He strode back and forth in the private dining-room of the Sirtis Major Club, near the western edge of Mars City, slapping his fist into his hand. His face usually was engaging and boyish, the wave of his dark hair setting it off handsomely, but now it was flushed like that of a petulant child, and the lock of hair hung down over his forehead. Maya, the only other person in the room, sat quietly and watched him pace. "'They had plenty of time and all the information they needed,' stormed Newell, "'and yet they didn't get a single one of the key men.' Most of the rebels slipped out easily, right under their noses. Maya watched him detachedly. This was the man she had promised to marry, and, as she had once or twice before, she was undergoing pangs of doubt. After all, she had known Newell Eli only during the few months she had been on Mars. She had fallen in love with him for his charm, his intelligence, his good-humored gentleness, but she did not like this display of temper. It was not a controlled anger, but had something of the irrational in it. "'Childress was captured,' she reminded him. "'Childress! A figurehead! He says he didn't know about the rebel activities going on in the college, and he's so stupid I may not be able to make a case against him.' Maya recognized that this element, the success of his prosecution, was a very important factor to Newell. "'Are the twelve I identified the only ones captured?' asked Maya. "'Yes, twelve captured, seven killed, and every one of them small fry. The leaders undoubtedly got away in that copter. We blockaded the airlocks fast, so most of the others are probably still in the city, but we don't have any idea where to look for them.' "'I may be able to help in that, when I get back from my swing around the other cities,' said Maya. "'I don't want you to go on that jaunt, Maya!' exclaimed Newell, swinging around to face her with fierce emphasis. "'You said when you had found the headquarters you'd resign the service and marry me. Now you want to go all over Mars looking for rebels!' "'Newell, I can identify almost all of those who were at the Barber College,' Maya remonstrated. "'They've picked up some men at the airlocks, and others on the roads at several cities.' and even Martian law won't permit you to uproot those people and send them to Mars City just on suspicion. They can't be sent here for me to identify. I'll have to go there. We can work out some charges to get them extradited to Mars City, snapped Newell angrily. I don't want you to go, Maya. I want you to stay here and marry me, immediately. Aren't you being a little dictatorial, Newell? she suggested coolly. The warning implied in her remoteness seemed to trigger a polarized reaction in Newell. The furious dark eyes melted suddenly, the stubborn anger of the face altered on the instant to a sentimental, wistful smile of appeal. "'Don't be angry, Maya,' he pleaded, half ruefully, half humorlessly. "'It's just that I love you so much. It's just that I'm impatient for you to be my wife.' Changeability is attributed to the feminine, but Maya was not able to shift her mood as facilely as her fiancé. "'If I'm worth marrying, I'm worth waiting for a little longer,' she said, with an edge to her voice. 
She was angry at Newell for acting so like a spoiled child. I'm going to see this job finished. I'm leaving for Solas Lacus on the jetliner tonight. Solas Lacus! he exclaimed in astonishment. Why, Maya, that's halfway around Mars! That's exactly why the rebels might be more likely to go there. In spite of the patrols, you know they haven't picked up all of the rebels who escaped Mars City by groundcar. Any of them who headed for Solus Lacus will be arriving there within the next two or three days. Then I'll make a swing around and spend as much time as necessary at each of the dome cities before coming back here. The angry, stubborn expression swept across Newell's face again. Maya, I won't, he began, but at that moment their guests began arriving. As the judge of Mars City Superior Court and his wife entered the room, Newell cut himself off sharp and turned to greet them. His face cleared instantly, his lips curved into a delighted smile, and he welcomed them with such natural, innocent charm that one would have thought he was incapable of frowning. The presence of the guest seemed to intoxicate him with good humor, and when he had to leave in the midst of the party to drive Maya to the airport, he did not resume his argument. He merely kissed her good-bye tenderly before she boarded the plane and begged her with melting eyes to hurry back, because he would be lonely every moment she was away. So it was that Maya stretched in a reclining chair on the sun-deck of the Chateau Nectaris the next afternoon, and permitted herself to be disgusted with the entire planet Mars. Maya's small, perfect body was kept minimally modest by one of those scanty Martian sunsuits. A huge straw hat, woven of dried canal sage, hid her beautiful face. A disappointing resort area for an earthwoman, this Solus Lacus lowland. No swimming, no boating, no skiing. No water and no snow. Just a vast expanse of salty ground blanketed with gray-green canal sage and dotted with the plastic domes of the resort chateaus. Nothing to do but hike in a Mars suit or sun oneself under a dome. She had chosen the Chateau Nectaris because it was the largest of the resort spots, and therefore the most likely one to be chosen by men who sought to hide out for a while. She had contacted the managers of all the resort chateaus, and all had agreed to let her know of the arrival of any new guests. There had been three of them during the morning, two arriving by ground-car and one by copter, at three different chateaus. She had driven to each one and circumspectly inspected the new guest, but none had been anyone she recognized from the Childress Barber College. In a way, she wished she had yielded to Newell's importunities. There was much more of interest to do in Mars City, and Newell was charming and intelligent and rather dashing, and she did love him, and she did want to marry him. But she was right in wanting to help identify those rebels who had been captured before she considered her task finished, and perhaps Newell had been right in his implied disagreement with her idea of coming first to Solus Lacus, so far from Mars City. Logically, would it not be harder to lose oneself in a fashionable resort area than in a good-sized city? But something within her had urged her to come here first. It was a hunch, and she intended to play it. With a sigh, Maya pushed the hat off her face and stared with exotically slanted black eyes at the shining blur of the dome hundreds of feet above her. She sat up, hugging her knees with her arms.
A score of other guests were sunning themselves here also. At her movement the unmarried men turned their eyes on her frankly. The married ones did so furtively, to be promptly yanked back to attention by their wives. Maya's onyx eye surveyed this dullness aloofly, then lifted over the nearby parapet and across the sparse terrestrial lawn, which would grow only under the dome. The far cliffs of the Thaumasia Felix Desert loomed darkly, distorted through the dome's sides. The dome's airlock opened to admit a ground car. She watched it, interestedly, as it scurried like a huge glassy bug along the curving road and disappeared under the parapet in front of the chateau. Mail from Mars City, perhaps, or supplies. Maybe even a new guest. Something struck her, now that the ground car was no longer in sight. It had been a little too far away to discern its details clearly, but there was something strange about the appearance of that ground car. A glassy bug, but not entirely sleek and shiny. Rather like a bug that had come out second best in an argument with another bug. Maya rose, purposefully. She stretched lithely, to the delight of the assembled viewers, and padded gracefully toward the chateau's second-floor entrance, trailing the huge hat in one hand. She walked lightly along the balcony over the lobby, toward her room. As she turned its corner, passing the grand stairway, she could see the chateau entrance and the registration desk. The ground car had brought a new guest. He was signing the registration book, a tall, broad-shouldered man in a Mars suit, holding his Mars helmet under his arm. Why would he be wearing a Mars suit in a ground car? As she looked, he laid down the pen and turned. His face was darkly tanned, strong, handsome. His hair was black as midnight, his eyes startlingly pale in the dark face. His gaze lifted to the balcony, and Maya ducked behind the big hat just in time. Dark Kensington. Triumph swept through her. She had been right in coming here. This was Dark Kensington, the man she had met once, just before the raid on the college. This was one of the leaders. The hat held casually to conceal her face, Maya walked on to her room. The telephone was ringing as she entered. She dropped the hat on the bed and answered it. "'Miss Karen Nome, this is Quelman Grin, the manager,' said the male voice on the line. "'You asked me to notify you about any new guests. One has just registered.' "'I saw him,' she said. "'What can you tell me about him?' "'He is registered as D. Kensington, from Hesperidum,' answered Grin. He is just staying overnight. His ground-car dome was broken in an accident, and he wants to have it replaced and the ground-car refueled." "'Thank you,' said Maya. "'Now please put a call for me to S. Newell Eli in Mars City.' She had bathed and dressed for dinner by the time the call came through. "'Newell,' she said, when he had identified himself on the other end of the line. "'I knew I was right in coming here. One of the rebel leaders just registered.' "'Are you sure?' he asked excitedly. "'Certainly I am. He was one of those who stayed hidden in the back of the barber college, and I saw him for the first time the day of the raid. He identified himself then as a supervisor, but he's just staying overnight.' "'That's long enough. I'll get a jet and be up in a few hours. Get the police to take him in custody and hold him for me.' "'Darling, there aren't any police at Solus Lacus,' Maya reminded him. This is a private resort area. The nearest police are at Ophir. 
There was a silence while Newell digested this. "'You say he's staying overnight?' Newell said then. "'I can be there before midnight with some men to take him in custody.' "'I'm a trained agent,' said Maya. "'I can take him in custody for you.' "'You'll do no such thing!' squawked Newell in alarm. "'It's too dangerous. Now listen to me, Maya. You stay out of sight of this man and wait till I get there.' "'All right, darling, I'll use my own judgment,' replied Maya demurely, and hung up. She sat and cogitated for a time. She was dressed for dinner, and she had been looking forward to appearing in the dining-room in the somewhat sensational, molded, flame-red gown she had bought recently in Mars City. She didn't relish the idea of having dinner sent to her room, and sitting up here alone to eat it. With sudden decision she arose. She donned dark glasses and tossed a powder-red veil over her dark hair. Kensington had only seen her once and would not be expecting to see her here. If he saw her now, he wouldn't recognize her. Fifteen minutes later she was sipping an extremely expensive martini in the dining-room, when she raised her eyes to see dark Kensington enter, wearing a dark-red, form-fitting evening suit. He paused just inside the door and stood there slowly surveying the room. His eyes fell on Maya and paused. Then he walked straight to her table. "'May I join you, Miss Kara Nome?' he asked in a deep, controlled voice, a rather sardonic smile on his lips. She felt trapped, and irrationally angry at him for recognizing her. "'I'm afraid you've made a mistake,' she said coldly. "'That isn't my name.' At this juncture a helpful waiter appeared at Maya's elbow and asked, in an appallingly distinct tone, "'Would you care for another drink, Miss Caranome, or do you wish to eat now?' "'An understandable mistake, since it's such a common name,' said Dark, sitting down opposite her. He turned pale blue eyes, remote and filled with light, on the waiter, and added, "'She'll have another drink, and bring me one of the same.' The waiter left, and Maya removed her dark glasses to level furious black eyes at dark. "'I could call the manager and complain that you're annoying me, you know,' she said. "'You could,' he agreed somberly. "'You seem to be a very efficient tattletale. Or are you going to try to pretend that you weren't the one responsible for the raid on the college?' She recognized that she was well in for it. He was not going to play a game of pretense. Well. She had tried, partly anyway, to do as Newell wanted. Very deliberately she opened her purse, realizing that Dark was watching her closely, all his muscles tense. She took out a cigarette-case and a lighter, laying them side by side on the table, and he relaxed visibly. Maya extracted a cigarette and placed it between her lips casually. She picked up the lighter and balanced it in her hand. "'I assume that you're not armed, Mr. Kensington,' she said. He shrugged and smiled, revealing strong white teeth. "'Hardly in this suit,' he replied. "'I'm glad to see you've decided to recognize me.' "'I am,' she said grimly. "'Armed, I mean. This is not a cigarette lighter, but a very efficient and deadly heat-gun. You're under arrest, Mr. Kensington, so I suppose you're having dinner with me, whether you like it or not.' Now, do you mind being a gentleman and lighting my cigarette, since this is not very good for the purpose?" He looked at her face, then dropped his eyes to the lighter, still smiling. 
You'd better take my word for it, she advised. I don't want to kill you, Mr. Kensington, but I won't hesitate. I'm an agent of the terrestrial government." Dark shrugged again. He produced a lighter and leaned forward to light her cigarette, without a tremor. The waiter returned with their drinks and an announcement. "'There's a telephone call for you from Mars City, Miss Karen Nome,' he said. Maya kept her eyes on Dark. "'Can you bring a telephone to the table?' she asked the waiter. "'Certainly, miss,' he replied. He left and returned a moment later with a telephone. He set it before her and plugged it in under the table. Juggling the lighter gun gently in one hand, Maya picked up the phone. As soon as she answered it, her eyes were assailed by Newell's agonized voice. "'Maya, I can't get up there tonight,' he said. "'There aren't any jets here, and those idiots refuse to bring one in from Hesperidum or Cynia for me to use. I'll have to come up by ground-car.' Maya sat silent, stunned. It had not seemed too great a feat to her to hold Dark captive with her disguised heat-gun when she was anticipating Newell's arrive within hours, but suddenly she felt like a hunter who has snared a lion in a rabbit-trap. "'Maya, are you there?' demanded Newell querulously. "'We'll spell each other at the wheel and drive up without stopping, but it will still take two and a half days to get there.' Maya took a deep breath. "'Come ahead,' she said in a steady voice. "'I'll have your man waiting for you when you get here.' "'You'll what? But I thought you said he was only staying overnight. Maya, don't you do anything rash.' "'I'm afraid I already have,' she said, a little ruefully. "'I have him under arrest right now.' The noise at the other end of the line sounded like a dismayed shriek. "'You little fool!' he shrilled. I told you not to do anything like that. How can you hold a man like that for two days, single-handed? Call in the police. It seems to me that I already mentioned there aren't any around here, she reminded him patiently. There was a long silence on the other end of the line. Then Newell said, with forced calm, I'm leaving immediately. In the name of space, Maya, be careful. Maya put the telephone quietly back in its cradle and looked across the table at the tartar she had caught. Dark smiled at her easily. "'So, the reinforcements you were expecting won't get here tonight after all,' he remarked softly. "'He didn't say that at all,' she retorted, too quickly. "'There's hardly any point in trying to deceive me about it, is there?' he pointed out. "'I can tell a great deal from your conversation and the expression on your face.' and I'd estimate that your help is going to have to come from Mars City by ground-car. A trip I've just made, so I know exactly how long it takes. Do you plan for us to spend these two nights in your room or mine?" She looked at him silently, stricken. "'I see our waiter returning,' said Dark equably. "'I trust you'll enjoy your meal as much as I'm going to enjoy mine, Miss Caranome.' Eight. The waiter unplugged the telephone and lifted it from their table. "'We're ready to order now,' Maya said to him. "'And please, ask Mr. Grin to come in here.' A few moments after the waiter left, the manager came to their table. Quellman Grin was dark and thin-faced, with sleek, oily hair. 
When I told you I was here in an official capacity for the government, Mr. Grin, you said you would cooperate with me in every way possible," said Maya. "'Yes, Miss Karanome, I have made every effort to do so,' replied Grin. "'Is there some way I can help you now?' "'Yes, there is,' she said. "'This man is my prisoner, and I'm going to have to keep him in custody here for two days and a half, until help arrives from Mars City.' I'd like for you to arm a couple of dependable men with heat-guns and assign them to help me guard him." Grin shook his head. "'I'm sorry, Miss Karanome, but none of the employees of the Chateau Nectaris was employed for that sort of work, and I'm not going to ask them to do it. What you should have is police help. As you know very well, there are no police nearer than Ophir,' she said in an exasperated tone. Surely you have some semi-official officers employed in the chateau, in case of trouble among the guests. I have a house detective, but his duties are to intervene only when some crime has been committed against a guest or against the chateau. You told me that you were seeking political rebels, and I assume that that is your charge against Mr. Kensington. My house detective has no authority to act in such cases and I do not intend to get the chateau mixed up in these affairs. I've cooperated with you to the extent of giving you information you wanted, Miss Karanome, and I'll continue to cooperate in so far as I am not asked to do something I have no authority to do. It occurs to me that if you came here seeking rebels, you should have come equipped to handle them if you found them. It occurs to me that you act very much as though you were in sympathy with the rebel cause retorted Maya angrily. My sympathies are not the government's affair, as long as I take no illegal actions, said Grin. Good evening, Miss Karanome. Maya gazed after him furiously as he left the dining-room. Dark, sitting completely relaxed, smiled pleasantly at her. Please be assured, he said, that I'm going to try to avoid injuring you in any way when I escape your custody. I'm not worried, because you aren't going to escape," she said. But I appreciate the thought. You seem to be a very mild-mannered person, for—' She stopped. "'For a rebel,' he finished for her. I really don't know what sort of indoctrination you must have had, Maya, if I may call you Maya, and there's no point in being formal under the circumstances. The students at the Barber College were all rebels, and the reports I received were that you got along nicely with most of them." "'Yes, I did. I don't suppose it should surprise me to find that rebels are human beings, too. Merely a matter of difference in orientation. And a question for you to consider is, which orientation actually is correct?' Maya did not like the direction the conversation was taking. She was relieved by the appearance of the waiter with their meals of thick, steaming steaks, with all the necessary trimmings. "'It will be a long time before we can be served anything like this by teleportation,' she said, laughing. "'But, Mr. Kensington, dark, if you don't mind.' "'Very well. Dark, you say that you drove here from Mars City. How did you avoid the copter patrols that were out trying to intercept the escaping rebels?' As a matter of fact, I didn't, and that's a very peculiar thing," he said thoughtfully. One of them got me just outside Mars City, 
and blasted the dome of my ground car. I noticed you were wearing a Mars suit when you registered here, and Gren said you were having the dome repaired. That's what's peculiar about it. I wasn't wearing the Mars suit when the copter broke my dome. I didn't have any protection at all. The ground car went off the road and overturned. I don't know how long I was unconscious, but it was evidently long enough for the copter to look me over, decide I was dead, and move on out of sight. What I can't understand is why I didn't asphyxiate. You mean that you were protected by no oxygen equipment at all? None. I returned to consciousness, and I was lying there in the dome broken wide open, and my face bare to the Martian air. I got into my Mars suit right away, of course, but that took a few minutes in addition to the time I was unconscious. And I didn't feel restricted by the lack of air. I wasn't even breathing. And I felt that I didn't need to. That is peculiar, she said meditatively. Tell me, do you know a man named Goat Hennessy? You're the second person who's asked me that recently, said Dark. I knew him well many years ago, but I haven't seen him in years. Why do you ask? Because the only case I've heard about of any human being able to live without oxygen in the Martian atmosphere involved some genetic experiments of Goat Hennessy, before the government made him stop them and destroy the creatures he'd been experimenting with. Dark laughed. I can assure you I'm not one of Goat's genetic experiments, he said. Goat and I were colleagues in this rebel movement twenty-five years ago, before I was hit by a period of amnesia that I've just come out of. She stared at him. A twenty-five-year period of amnesia? Impossible. You're not more than twenty-five years old, she said positively. If what people tell me is correct, I'm nearer sixty said Dark. Terrestrial years, of course. Of course, but I don't believe it. Dark shrugged and cut another bite of steak. He seemed to be enjoying his meal quite as much as though he were not her prisoner and she his captor, as indeed she was too. They chatted pleasantly throughout the meal, and Maya found, somewhat to her surprise, that she was talking about herself a great deal to this pale-eyed man. She told him of her childhood on Mars, among the Martians, and of going to Earth to live with her uncle, a world senator who had had close and profitable connections with Mars Corp. She went on to tell of her decision to become an agent of the terrestrial government, despite her uncle's objections, but as a result of his often expressed enthusiasm for the government's role in developing the planetary colonies, and of her assignment to Mars to ferret out a rebel headquarters which had eluded the best efforts of the Martian government. She even told him how she had met Newell and fallen in love with him. Some time after the meal's conclusion she suddenly stopped in mid-sentence. "'What's the matter?' asked Dark. "'I just realized that you are my prisoner,' she answered, smiling at him. "'Frankly, I'm not sure what to do with you. We can't just sit here in the dining-room all night.' Why not go out and sit on the terrace? he suggested. They say that Solus Lacus is a beautiful sight when Phobos is up and moving. And a shadowed terrace is a very convenient place from which to attempt an escape, she countered.
"'Look,' he said, "'there's no point in making the evening more difficult than it is. I very definitely intend to get away from you and get out of here during the next two days if I can. But I'm enjoying this conversation. If I promise that I won't attempt an escape in the next two hours, are you willing to go up on the terrace for a while?' She studied his face carefully. It was a handsome, earnest face, full of strength, full of wisdom, with a touch of weariness. "'All right,' she said at last, "'but I warn you that if my trust is misplaced and you do attempt to escape, I'll burn you down without compunction.' They went up together, quite as casually as might any two guests relaxing at the resort, and found chairs in the semi-darkness overlooking the moonlit lowland. Dimos hung near the zenith, a tiny globe of light, virtually stationary. Phobos, larger and brighter, was not long risen, and it moved swiftly and smoothly across the sky, like the cold searchlight of some giant aircraft. Touched and transformed by the shifting shadows, Maya and Dark sat and chatted like old friends. Dark talked now, and he told her of his past life, of his coming to Mars, of his joining the rebel movement upon realizing how the government was holding back man's progress toward Martian self-sufficiency. He spoke soberly, with intense conviction, and Maya, listening, began to realize that there was another side to this conflict than the one she had been taught. She began to waver, and to wonder, for the grave voice of this man was like a deep music she had never heard before but seemed to remember from some time before there was hearing, a music that touched the depths of her being. Then his arm slid around her waist and he drew her gently toward him. For an instant she responded, turning her face upward. And on that instant she remembered. With a lightning twist she was free and on her feet before him. She stepped back and the lighter gun was in her hand. "'I thought you said I could trust you.' she said coldly. Evidently, I was foolish to do so. He looked up at her, and there was nothing but surprise on his face. Then, slowly, he smiled at her. "'It depends on your interpretation of the word,' he said. "'I was merely attempting to kiss you, my dear.' She let her hand sag, feeling rather foolish. "'Well, don't,' she said, her sharpness covering her confusion. We aren't lovers, Mr. Kensington." "'No,' he said, quite seriously. "'And I find that I rather regret that we aren't.' She stood looking at him, fighting off a sneaking regret of her own that he hadn't succeeded in his intention. "'I think this moonlight has had an unfortunate effect on us both,' she said. "'We'd better go inside. Besides, if I'm to keep watch over you all night, I want to get into something more practical than an evening gown." Without protest, Dark preceded her inside. They went to the manager's office, and Maya issued instructions to Grin. "'Have a maid move my things from my third-floor room to a room on the top floor,' she ordered. "'We'll wait here until it's done.' When the maid brought Maya the key to the new room, she and Dark took the elevator to it. As soon as they were inside, she locked the door behind them. I'm going into the bathroom to change clothes," she said precisely. The window to this room is six floors above a stone courtyard, 
and I don't think you can jump that far without being killed, even on Mars. Since these windows don't open, I'll hear you if you break it to get out, and I can burn you long before you can climb down the face of the wall." The lighter gun in her hand, she went into the bathroom and closed the door behind her. She had just stripped off the evening gown when she heard the bathroom door lock from the outside. A moment later there was the crashing sound of breaking glass. Calmly, Maya burned off the lock of the bathroom door with the little heat gun. She pushed it open and went out into the room in her underwear. Dark was in the process of gingerly climbing through the broken window. "'It's a long fall, Dark,' she said. He looked back over his shoulder. He smiled ruefully and came back into the room. "'Well, it was worth a try,' he said philosophically. He surveyed her with frankly admiring eyes and added, "'And it was worth falling for the view.' She turned pink, but, without taking her eyes off him, she reached back into the bathroom, got the tunic and trousers she had laid out, and slipped them on. "'I think it would be better if we go down and sit in the middle of the lobby,' she said, unlocking the door to the room. "'That way you'll have farther to run if you try to get away.' They went down and found comfortable seats. They sat there, talking, to all casual appearance, two of the chateau's guests. Gradually the conversation moved back to its earlier informal and friendly terms. How long they sat chatting, Maya did not know, for she was wrapped up in her enjoyment of the things Dark said and his attitude toward life. But after a time she realized that no more guests were sitting in the lobby or moving through it. They were the only ones there, except for Gren, sitting morosely behind the registration desk. "'Just how do you propose to get any sleep and watch me at the same time?' asked Dark. "'I don't,' she answered, smiling. "'If you can stay awake for two nights, so can I.' "'You forget, young lady,' he retorted. "'I don't have to.' With that he stretched out unceremoniously on the sofa on which he had been sitting, clasped his hands behind his head, and closed his eyes. Within a very short time he was obviously and genuinely sound asleep. Maya sat there and watched him, peaked and a little nonplussed. She could hardly afford to go to sleep, too. Her only course was to stay awake, to sit there and watch him sleeping comfortably and soundly. It was not a pleasant prospect for two nights. She sat, heavy-eyed, and racked her brain for some solution and silently cursed Grin for refusing to give her the help she needed. Dark slept on, and a faint smile touched his lips. Then Maya found herself thinking pleasantly over the things they had talked about during the long evening, and admiring this man, and liking him. She woke up. With a start she woke up, realizing that she had been asleep. She was not sitting in the chair any more, but curled up comfortably on a sofa, her head pillowed like a child's against—against against what? Against Dark's chest. He was awake, sitting up, smiling down at her, and she was cradled in the curve of his arm, and the little lighter gun was no longer in her hand. She did not react violently to the sudden realization. She sighed, almost happily, and murmured to him, "'So you win after all.' I think I'm glad, Dark. 
Now you can go if you want to. He shook his head. I'm glad you feel that way about it, Maya, but I'm afraid it's too late. I really shouldn't have stayed around to serve as your pillow till you awoke. There was something in his face that caused her to sit up suddenly. Two uniformed men stood there in the lobby before them, relaxed but watchful, regulation heat-guns dangling from their hands. As she sat up, one of them touched his cap and spoke to her. "'We're police officers from Ophir, Miss Karanome. Mr. Eli called from Mar City and directed us to drive over here and help you guard the prisoner until his arrival.' She rose angrily. "'I didn't ask for your help, so you may go,' she said aware of dark, surprised gaze on her. I made a mistake in identification. The policeman who had spoken shook his head. I'm sorry, he said. We're acting on Mr. Eli's orders, not yours. We'll have to hold Mr. Kensington until Mr. Eli arrives. She glared at them. The one who had spoken was big and burly and efficient-looking. The other was sallow and silent, with a deadly cast to his thin face. Then she saw her lighter gun, lying on the lobby floor beside the chair in which she had gone to sleep. She bent down, casually, and picked it up. She straightened the little instrument ready in her hand. "'This is not a cigarette lighter, but a heat gun,' she said flatly. "'I'm in charge here, and I say Mr. Kensington is to be permitted to go free. If any effort is made to stop him, I'll burn you down.' Both police heat-guns swung up in short arcs and trained on her. The burly policeman spoke gently. "'I'm sorry, Miss Karanome, but we're under orders from Mr. Eli, and we intend to follow them,' he said. "'I'd hate to see you injured, but if you blast either of us, the other one will burn off your hand.' "'No, Maya,' exclaimed Dark, getting to his feet. "'Don't. There's no point in your getting hurt for my sake.' She ignored him. "'Drop those heat-guns, both of you, or I blast!' she snapped, almost hysterically. Then Dark hurled himself bodily at the two men. The thin-faced man swung his heat-gun around to meet Dark's charge. Maya twisted the lighter-gun toward him, and at the same moment the burly policeman threw himself against her. Her heat-beam singed the thin-faced one's shoulder, then she collapsed under the impact of the other's body. As she fell, she saw the almost invisible beam of the thin-faced policeman's heat-gun strike dark directly in the stomach, burning away the cloth, burning a great, gaping hole in his abdomen. Dark slid to the floor, writhing, gasping, clutching his stomach. Her lighter-gun knocked from her hand, Maya struggled, half-dazed to her feet. The burly policeman had swung his own gun on the prostrate dark but the other one, grimacing with the pain of his wounded shoulder, stopped him. "'Let him be,' he said. "'I like to watch them die.' With a wail, Maya dropped to Dark's side. She cradled his head against her breast and sobbed as he died in her arms. End of Chapter 8